Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture is Exodus 1, 8 to 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called to the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me just give you a very warm welcome. Uh, when Jake asked uh, for me to come and, and, and preach with you, I was really honored. It took him four years. I've been working with him for four years. Um, and when I found out, he asked me because he was going on a missions trip to Mexico. Uh, I was a little skeptical. Uh, you should be skeptical. Ask, ask questions. Ask questions of your pastor. No, no, no I, I'm really uh, grateful to be with you uh, this morning as, you, as we start and uh, continue on this journey in Exodus. We started last week. I don't know how many of you were here last week, um, but today things take a bit of a turn, don't they? Last week, things were upbeat and optimistic and hopeful, uh, but this week, the battle lines are drawn. This week, there's conflict. This week, there's suffering there's an enemy. And it's a conflict that we're going to see all the way through the book of Exodus. Um, it's a conflict, I think, that is not dissimilar to the conflict that we may face as Christians in, in this city. In fact, I want to argue that it is the same conflict. It's the age-old conflict. 
uh, that we experience. And therefore, understanding texts like this is going to really help us as we navigate life as, as Christians um, in Vancouver. And so we're going to get right into it this morning with three points that I think are going to help us navigate and understand this text. So three points this morning. First is extraordinary evil. Extraordinary evil. Second, humble defiance. And third, ultimate victory. Extraordinary evil, humble defiance, ultimate victory. So first point, extraordinary evil. If um, you were around uh, last week, you'll have heard Jake mention uh, or make reference to the fact that in the opening verses of Exodus, uh, we are being asked to look back at Genesis. The author, we might say, pulls all of the history, all of the story, all of the promises of God that we see in Genesis, and he brings them into Exodus. And so as we begin, we know that this is not the beginning, right? Rather, that this is a continuation of a story that God is telling and is unfolding, and it's a story that reveals to us who God is. And it's a story that is revealing to us who we are in relation to him. And more specifically in this case, who Israel are now as God's chosen people, equipped with his promises and called to live out his purposes in in the world. And so what Exodus begins to show us is that the promises that were given to Abraham, that they're actually coming to pass. They're coming to fruition as his family becomes a people, a nation, as they are fruitful and multiply and fill the land, experiencing both growth and strength and demonstrating, what you heard last week, demonstrating God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. But in verse 8, where we pick up the story today, there's a pause, isn't there? In fact, if this was a movie, the soundtrack would change to indicate to us that the mood has changed. An ominous track would play as we read this line. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, on the surface, this is a pretty obvious statement. If we know anything about the history, Joseph has been dead for 400 years, and who remembers a guy who's been dead for 400 years? And so it makes sense that Pharaoh would not know who he was. But the author here is actually making a specific point. You see, if if last week what the author was trying to show us is the continuity between Genesis and Exodus, this week what we're supposed to see is that there is now a threat to that continuity. There is a threat to the promises of God being fulfilled in their fullness. There is a threat that appears in the person of Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh is going to act as the antagonist for much of the book of Exodus. And so it's important that we know who he is and, and the role that he plays, or indeed the title of Pharaoh, the role that that plays in the book. And What we'll see is that Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, is not simply ignorant of Joseph, as as the text might, you might uh, assume from the text. He's not simply ignorant of who Joseph is and therefore who God is and who, what the promises of God um, are, uh, but he stands in active opposition to God. He stands in active opposition to God. And so he says to the Egyptians in verse 9, behold, 
The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, what's interesting here is that Pharaoh, he is using the language of the promises. He restates the language of the promises of of growth and of strength, yet he sees it slightly differently. You see, when we read the opening of verses of Exodus, as Jake rightly said last week, we are seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God. But Pharaoh reads the opening verses of Exodus as a threat to his power. And so what does he do? Well, technically he does two things. And what I want us to see is that these things that he does are not arbitrary, but they are actually specifically targeted against the promises of God. First thing he does is he enslaves them. He enslaves them. He sets to work in order to weaken them. Second, he strategically kills them. He orchestrates a a policy of infanticide, killing their children, killing their boys specifically because of their ability to become warriors. Kills their boys to stem the tide of their population growth. And for strength and growth, he has two attacks to it. And so Pharaoh is introduced to us today in the book as almost an archetype for evil, an archetype for the one who is in opposition to God. And for the next 15 chapters, this conflict conflict between God and Pharaoh is going to play out in dramatic fashion. And some of us already know where this is going, and it's it's good fun, so you can look forward to it. Um. Now, if if we're overly familiar with the story, and and some of us here might be, or we've watched The Prince of Egypt, or, you know, we we sort of know the broad brushstrokes, it might pass us by, but I think it's worth saying that what Pharaoh does here is evil. It's absolutely evil. What he does here stands alongside the atrocities of slavery and of infanticide and of genocide that tarnish much of human history. And I think it's important that we feel the weight of the evil that is being perpetrated here. But even as we feel the weight of it, I think at the same time, it's also important for us to not distance ourselves too far from it. I think it's easy for us to assume that Pharaoh and indeed the Egyptians who participate in this evil are so different from us. And we do this, don't we, when we read stories. I don't know if you do this. I do this. I identify with the heroes. And I disassociate myself with the villain. We read a story like this of extraordinary evil and we think that it could only have been committed by someone who is extraordinarily evil. I was watching a a documentary the other day on Netflix, as you do, and um, a documentary called Ordinary Men. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's based on a book by Christopher Browning. And the documentary um, tells a story of Battalion 101 in the Reserve Police uh, during the Second World War. Uh, German men in the Second World War who, by all accounts, were just ordinary. They were just ordinary men. They, they weren't soldiers on the front line. They weren't ideologically Nazis. 
They weren't particularly interested in what the Nazis were doing. They were carpenters and farmers and electricians. They were fathers, they were sons, they were husbands. But this single battalion of less than 500 men ended up killing over 80,000 Jews. They were, what, uh, they were part of what was known as the Forgotten Holocaust. These ordinary men, they were tasked with lining up Jews in pits, men, women, and children, and shooting them at point-blank range. And over the course of the war, they killed over 80,000 Jews. 80,000. Think about that. Horrific. It's really difficult to watch. Even more difficult to comprehend, isn't it? And it poses, I think, the profound question of how, how is it possible for ordinary men to commit extraordinary evil? How is it possible? It's the question we might ask of all historic and current atrocities. It's the question I think that we should ask of our text today. How is it possible for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to commit such evil? And I think our text is going to give us some insights that are going to be helpful for us in understanding evil. And it's important that we understand evil. Look at verse 10. Pharaoh says this. He says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Hear me out here. On the surface, we might dare to say that what Pharaoh does is justifiable. We might dare to say. Consider the situation. In the ancient world, there is an ever-present threat of invasion from the outside and uprising from within. And we know this from history, particularly in this period in Egypt. And Pharaoh has a growing population of foreigners in their land who are growing strong. They pose a major threat to national security and something needs to be done. And so Pharaoh's fears seem to be warranted because no matter how much he tries to stop their growth, they just keep growing. In verse 12 it says, But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians, so his people, were in dread of the people of Israel. And so as I said before, we read the opening verses of Exodus as the fulfillment of God's promises. But from Pharaoh's perspective, this is a threat. This is a threat. In fact, the language in in the Hebrew could be read as a threat. Rather than seeing this as fruitfulness and blessing, we also see in the language last week, there was the language of swarming. This week, there's the language of spreading, as if they were an infestation. You know what's interesting about this language is that when read this way, it's very similar to Nazi propaganda in the Second World War. Very similar. They describe the Jews as vermin, as an infestation, as a threat to national security, as subhuman. You know, one of the presuppositions of xenophobia, which literally means fear of the other, 
is to have a category that defines us and them. Us and them. It is to dehumanize another and in so doing legitimize treating others inhumanely. It's one of the reasons why the men in Battalion 101 were able to justify what they did. Because the Jews weren't humans, they were vermin. They were pests, they were a threat. They were a threat to our way of life, a threat to our family. And so they were no longer people to be loved, but they were a problem to be solved. And so out of fear, they did what they did, and that's exactly what we see in our text. Out of fear. And so we might say that, how is it possible? Well, they, they were fearful. It's fear that drives their evil. But I think we need to dig a little deeper here because there's a more foundational reason than even fear. Look at verse 10 again. It says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, if we had just been in Genesis and we'd have read through it, we might have picked up on some similarity in language between the verse that I've just read and Genesis 11. Genesis 11, where we read the story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, it says this, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks made for stone. And, and you say bitumen, I say bitumen, for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I don't know if you know the story of the Tower of Babel, but it is one of the primal stories of human arrogance and pride. It's a story as, as people attempt to rise above God, rise up to God and above God to make a name for themselves. And I think as we read our text today, we're supposed to see a connection here because in one sense, Pharaoh is introduced as a new threat to the promises of God. But in another sense, he's nothing new. He's nothing new. This is not a new evil. This is the original evil. This is the evil of the serpent in the garden who tempts Adam and Eve with the promise to be like God. It's the evil of Babel, attempting to rise above God. It's the evil of humanity that dethrones God and enthrones self. And so Pharaoh is new, but he's not novel. He is simply a manifestation of the age-old uh, age sin of pride. That's who Pharaoh is. St. Augustine an early church theologian, he describes pride like this. He says, pride is the beginning of sin. Pride is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is, uh, this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him, that is God, when the soul abandons God to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end in itself. St. Augustine here is saying that at the root of sin, at the root of all sin is pride and at the heart of pride is an attempt to play God to enthrone ourselves, to take the place of God, to not live for God, but to live for ourselves. And when we live for ourselves, what becomes of other people? Well, everyone else either becomes a means to our ends, they become builders of our kingdoms, slaves for our wishes, or they become problems to be solved. 
obstacles to be overcome. And in fact, in, in Pharaoh's case, that is who the Israelites are. They become builders of his kingdom and pests to manage, obstacles to overcome. C.S. Lewis once said of pride, he said, the problem of pride is not just that we don't look up to God, it's that we look down on others. And so underneath this fear is the evil of pride. In fact, for Pharaoh, his pride has been institutionalized. It's been institutionalized. You see, if you study Egyptian history, historians will tell us that pharaohs were the embodiment of the gods. They were, they were gods among men. They were not normal men. They were gods. And uh, I don't know if any of you have your pride institutionalized. You might have it in your household or at work. But we all suffer from this disease, don't we? At times. We too are tempted to play God. We too are tempted to see others as less than us. To see other people as useful for our plans or hindrances to our plans. And so how is it possible for ordinary people to do extraordinary evil? It's when the seed of pride is given space to grow in us. It's when our vision of God and of self and of others is misaligned and disoriented. And so Christ as we are confronted with great evil this morning, and we are confronted with great evil, I think it would be wise of us to not conceive it as evil out there, but to see it as a potential evil in here that needs to be addressed. This is an age-old conflict. It manifests in Pharaoh, it manifests in Egypt, it will manifest in the Israelites too later on. If we allow it to take root, it will produce in us all kinds of extraordinary evil, and we might even justify it in the process. Point one, extraordinary evil. Two, humble defiance, humble defiance. In our text today, we're not just introduced to the antagonist of the book, uh, but we're also introduced to two heroes, two humble heroes uh, who have a small part to play, but a significant role. Uh, Verse 15 begins this. Uh, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So, having enslaved the Israelites and rather than it doing what he hoped it would do and weakening them, it actually ends up strengthening them. Pharaoh tries something else, a second plan, and he tasks the Hebrew midwives with killing the Israelites' sons. And there's a great irony here, isn't there? There's a great irony in asking midwives to kill babies. The women whose job, whose vocation it is to deliver life into the world are being asked to take it. Think about that for a second. And so what do they do? 
When faced with this command, when faced with this pressure, it's the king commanding them to do something. What do they do? Well, they do something very simple and yet no less profound. They say, no. They say, no. <laughs> they did not do it. <laughs> you know, I love this because of just how normal it is. You know, we're going through the book of Exodus, and as we go through it, we're going to see God acting in just incredibly supernatural ways. There's going to be clouds and fire. There's going to be plagues and miracles. It's going to be, you know, it's a firework show. Exodus is awesome. But right here at the start of the story, you're given two ordinary women with ordinary jobs doing, in a sense, an ordinary thing. And I love that. I think it's a beautiful snapshot to the normative Christian life. As we go about our Christian life, it reminds us that when we, we have our ordinary lives, I don't, maybe you've got an extraordinary life. I've got a very ordinary life. I go about my ordinary life, raising my children, doing my work, managing my household. I can make a profound difference with a simple act of humble defiance and saying no. Saying no. This is the Christian life. It's to say no when, when the tide of culture turns against the will of God. That's the Christian life. It's to say no when everyone around us has normalized what we know to be evil. And we're just saying no. It's to say no when you're asked or even told and you might be told, I don't know your situation, you might be told, you might be commanded to do something that will cross your conscience and grieve your God, and you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. No. You know, a little while back, there was a, kind of a move in Christian circles to say something like, we want to be people that talk about more, more about what we're for and not what we're against. You know that move? You remember that? <laughs> and, I, and I get the sentiment, and I think it's a good sentiment because, you know what, we should be talking more and more about what we're for. And there's lots that we are for. But let me be clear. You know there's lots that we're against? Do you know there's lots that we're against? Do you know the Bible talks a lot about what we're against? So the Christian life doesn't always look like compliance. Do you know that? The Canadians in the room are. <laughs> the Christian life doesn't always look like compliance. Often, I think, it looks like defiance. It looks like rebellion. Now, let's, let's be cautious here. Like, <laughs> but often... Christianity looks like an unequivocal no to evil demands. And so Shifra and Pua, these names that you've probably not heard before, Shifra and Pua serve for us as a model of humble defiance. Humble defiance. Christ City, would we be like these women? Would we be like these women who at great personal risk, think about it, this is the king, this is Pharaoh, telling them to do something. It's a funny story when you think about it, and they just did not do it. With the weight of power against them, they took a stand against evil with a simple refusal to comply. 
Christ City and our city, worship may look, may look more and more like dissent. Now, I don't think it will necessarily get easier. So the question is, how? How? How can, how can we do this? In the same way as we ask the question of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, how is it possible that they were able to commit such atrocities? How is it possible that they were, they were able to be so evil? We can also ask ourselves the question, how is it possible to show such courage, to do such good in the face of such evil? And again, I think we're given the answer in our text. If you look at verse 17, it says this, but the midwives feared God. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The midwives, simple. They feared God. That's the difference. You know, you know, in our text today, we're actually given a contrast, a contrast between Pharaoh and the midwives. And they contrast in so many ways. One has absolute power, the other has not much power. One is a man, the other is women. It's a deal in the ancient world. A contrast between Pharaoh and the midwives who act as the antithesis of each other. Pharaoh who saw himself as a God above men and as a result, he lived in fear and behaved like a coward. But the midwives who saw themselves as women under God and as a result, lived with unbelievable courage and bravery. Christ City, how is it possible to display this sort of courage in the face of great evil? The answer is simple. It's that we fear God. It's that we truly fear God, that we live before him. You see, to fear God is to recognize and to acknowledge who God is in his power and his majesty and his authority over us and his holiness. To fear God is to recognize who God is, and as such, as a result of that, is to recognize who we are in him. To recognize who we are in relation to him. Reminder, we're sinners saved by grace, called to be his. The fear of God, we might say, is the ultimate antidote to the sin of pride that enthrones him, that re-enthrones him to his rightful place. But even more than that, fearing God doesn't only give us a right perspective of who he is and who we are, but he also helps us to see who others are rightly. To see who others are rightly. And we see this in the midwives, don't we? The midwives see the babies rightly. You know what? They also see Pharaoh, Pharaoh correctly. You see, when we truly fear God, we don't fear anyone else. We don't fear anyone else. We can stand before kings. Why? Because we know that king has a king over him. We can stand before authorities. Why? Because we know that they're not the ultimate authority. The midwives were able to display such enormous bravery. Why? Because they were oriented correctly to their God. They understood who they were, and they understood who others were, both in not thinking less of others, as if they had the right over people's lives, but also in not thinking too much of others, in that they didn't fear Pharaoh. Extraordinary evil, humble defiance. Last point today, ultimate victory. 
Look again at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. This is funny, by the way. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Pharaoh women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. What a great story. Pharaoh wanted to deal shrewdly with the Israelites, and yet he gets dealt shrewdly. Midwives deal shrewdly with him. And a beautiful turn of events, these women, in defending the promises of God, are themselves enfolded into those promises as God gives them families of their own. They, too, are fruitful and multiply. What a wonderful story. It feels like a victory, doesn't it? I'm sure it did for them at the moment when they didn't get killed. (laughs) But is it a victory? Because following their courage, in the very next verse, we read this in verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So having seen the faith of the midwives, their courage and bravery, it appears that Pharaoh is just going to get his own way anyway. He's just going to get his own way. In fact, if you take a step back and you look at this text that we're looking at today as a whole, that there is a pattern that emerges that is quite disheartening, actually. I don't know if you can see, I've got a slide for it that just shows that in both instances of slavery and infanticide, there is oppression, there is resistance, and what is the result of that resistance? There is more oppression. It it gets worse. And, And so we end today... While we have seen courageous resistance, we've seen this, this humble defiance against tyranny, each time we end up in a worse place than we started as the slavery becomes increasingly ruthless and the infanticide that went from a, maybe a private scheme among the Hebrew midwives has now become a public policy where all of the Egyptians are enlisted to participate in the murder of the sons. And we're left wondering, what's the point What is the point? You know, if if all we had were these verses, we might leave here discouraged because irrespective of the bravery of the midwives, it looks like it won't make a difference in the grand scheme of things. In fact, their faithfulness seems to just compound the issue. That's how we can feel, isn't it? That's how we can feel in the midst of trials and in suffering in our attempts to be faithful, in our attempts at humble defiance. We don't often see things get better, do we? They do for a time. But at times like this and in texts like these, let me just encourage you to just take a step back. Take a step back because you know there's a bigger pattern at play. As some of you know, and you may have seen, I have three young sons, and um, the older two, we've just transitioned. This is a you know, big moment in our lives. We've just transitioned from reading these short stories to chapter books. If you have young children, you know the moment. You know, you finally get away from these terrible short stories, and um, now I can read some decent books. You know? And um, we just finished The Swiss Family Robinson with the boys, uh, which is awesome, by the way plug. Um, uh, 
But the way that it's written is that every chapter ends on a cliffhanger and my kids can't handle it. At the end of every night, uh, they're just freaking out. So it will say something like, and then they turned around the corner and before them stood these great big figures and they couldn't believe their eyes. All right, good night, kids. And my kids are like, uh, um, so, so what I have to do now is I have to read the first page of the next chapter because we all know that the first page of the next chapter just breaks the tension. It just shows us what is going to actually happen. And sometimes we need to do this. Sometimes we need to do this with text. Sometimes we need to do this in our lives. Let me give you a little preview of what we're going to see. We're going to see that Pharaoh doesn't have the final word. In this text, he does, but he doesn't. We're going to see that he, in his pride, will be humbled, and ultimately his name will be forgotten. We're going to see that the midwives, their names are being spoken about today. In fact, their names will be spoken about throughout eternity. Pharaoh's attempts to hinder the promise will, in fact, be the very catalyst for the Savior that will rise in among his own household. That Moses will come. That's next week. It's going to be great. Through this policy of killing the sons will come a savior who will deliver the people from slavery. That's where we're going. Christ City, in our lives sometimes, we need to know where we're going. We need to take a step back from our suffering. When we're caught up in our circumstances, when we're trying to live faithfully and we see that it doesn't seem to be going well, it looks like things are not working out, we need to take a moment to step back. Which is why in this series, we're going to constantly be just taking a moment to step back, see where we're going. But not only in the book of Exodus, we're going to be taking a step back a little further to see the gospel. To see that all of this ultimately points to Jesus. Who reminds us that there is a final victory. Do you know that? Sometimes we need to take a step back and be reminded of the victory of Jesus. And that's why every week we go to the cross. Why? Because it's there that it is finished. That this conflict that has been going through the ages, a victory has been decisively won by Jesus on the cross for us on our behalf. And so now we live with victory before us. The schemes of the enemy will not prevail. God's plans will come to pass. God does and will fulfill his promises. And so even when things feel lost, and maybe you've come here today and you, you just like, I'm tired. Things feel lost. For those who love God, all things work together. History bends towards justice. Finally and ultimately, Jesus wins. And so if you're on his side, if you are in him today, irrespective of your circumstances, you can be sure of the ultimate victory. So today we're introduced to an enemy, yes, an age-old enemy, manifest in Pharaoh and can manifest in us. And we are called to not participate in the evil, but to stand in humble defiance against it. But even when things don't go well, we can be sure of an ultimate victory.
Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be reminded of your sovereignty over all things. As we're confronted with evil today, Lord, we pray that we would resist it and hold fast to what is good. I pray, Lord, that we would not let a seed of pride um, be given any airspace, be given any um, ability to grow in us, that we would be those who fear God, that know who you are and know who we are in you. And we would be those who hold, hold fast to the victory that has been won for us in Christ. I pray for East Vancouver, for this church community, that you would continue to work in them and through them for your glory and not for theirs. And that they would live with their sights set on the final victory. That they wouldn't be disheartened or dismayed or feel like what they're doing is pointless or not making a difference, but they would be reminded of Shifra and Pua in their humble defiance, stood against tyranny and will be remembered throughout the ages. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.